Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for the joy of this fellowship, the blessing that it is to be amongst friends and brothers and sisters in the Lord. Thank you for a church that knows the truth and endeavors to teach it. I begin our prayer every Sunday, Father, with thanks, for that is the heart that we are to carry, the heart that remembers so much of what you have done and what you are doing through and by this fellowship, that you have brought us into being for a reason. And that reason, Father, will always extend to your glory and to your purposes in building the kingdom. But even in the meantime, it has benefits for each of us in the way that you're ministering to us through the lives of others around us. Thank you for the blessing that our fellowship is to so many and for so many years. And, Father, that is a stewardship you've entrusted to us. We know that. We care to do what you wish to do to please you through our service and to make the most of what you've given us. And, Lord, to do that well, to be ready for what comes, we know that you ask us to be in your word. While many in this world today, many Christians even, have set the the word aside and have made it less than it could be and and window-dressing it best in the service, we've kept it first and foremost on our minds, Father, for we know the power of the word of God to change lives, to conform us to the image of Christ, to be an instrument of change in the hearts of those we might influence. And we cannot use what we do not know and do not have at our disposal. So I pray, Father, what we learn today would be uh, engine, would be fuel to the engine of our hearts, something that would let us act and live differently, witness better, serve you in a more um, honest, a more accurate way. And as we seek to learn, Father, I pray each of our hearts would be open to changing our minds at times, to seeing things differently and new according to your word. That we cannot be teachable if we think we already know all that's true. We cannot be pleasing to you, Father, if we continue to live according to our own desires and our own thoughts and our own ways. So give us a heart, Father, to hear, to know, to live, to be in accordance with your truth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We start the next major section of Paul's letter, and with it comes a new topic. Paul's ready to tackle the next question that he received from the Corinthian church as delivered by Chloe's delegation. That topic is spiritual gifts in the body. Paul is now going to use the next three chapters of this letter to cover this issue in depth. And so, as you can tell, we're going to be discussing it for a number of weeks. The topic that he's now getting into, spiritual gifts, is probably the most controversial topic of any that get raised in the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. This topic was controversial in Paul's day, which is why he wrote the letter. And it's still controversial today in many ways. But it hasn't always been controversial. In fact, Paul's letter largely settled all the questions on the purpose and on the operation of spiritual gifts in the body when it was written. And those issues remained settled for the better part of 1900 years until the controversy returned at the beginning of the 20th century. We're going to look at the history of spiritual gifts in the way we study through the next three chapters, but for now we're going to leave that aside and we're going to just go into the letter as Paul begins in chapter 12, introducing this new topic. Let's start in verses 1 through 3. Paul says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, 
Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. The chapter opens up with now concerning, which you all may remember as I've taught in the past. This is the telltale sign in this letter whenever Paul enters into a new topic. So here we are now beginning a new topic. We've left behind the subject of Christian liberty, which was the last topic, and we've moved into this new area of discussion. But Paul doesn't actually announce what the new topic is until verse four, which we haven't read yet. Instead, in verses one through three, he establishes a fundamentally important principle of Christian experience that we all have to understand if we're to appreciate the topic of spiritual gifts properly. In fact, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that if a student does not understand Paul's point in the first three verses of this chapter, that student is doomed to misunderstand the rest of the teaching on the topic of gifts. Paul ends verse one by saying he does not want the church to be unaware of something. The better translation in our vernacular would be, I don't want you to be ignorant. And the phrase was Paul's polite way of telling the church, you're ignorant. (laughs) There was a fundamental fact of Christian theology that had escaped the Corinthians' understanding. And if they had any hope at all to appreciate spiritual gifts in the proper way, they had to understand this one missing fact. And so Paul begins with this missing fact. Verse 2, Paul explains what they're missing. Prior to coming to faith, Paul says, unbelievers are led astray in a variety of ways. Notice Paul ends verse two by saying, however you were led. What he means is unbelievers are prompted to say and to do many things through the influences of a wide variety of forces and desires and temptations. But those forces all work together universally to lead them away from the truth. And in particular, in the area of religious worship, all believers are, by definition, astray. The word astray just means to be apart from the truth, away from the truth. Unbelievers chase after so-called gods and mute idols, Paul says. They give their allegiance and their worship to things that are not real. And in doing so, they have full conviction and sincerity They are following things that are not true. They don't actually exist, but they are fully sincere in that pursuit, fully convinced that there's something real there. They're convinced of the reality of false things, false gods, false beliefs. And so despite their sincerity, despite their conviction, in the end, they are devoted followers of lies, even atheists are devoted to false ideas, to the idea that creation lacks a creator. But that in itself is faith or a devotion of sorts to a lie. So that, Paul says, is the condition of every single unbeliever on earth, whether they know it or not, of course. Paul's point is this, that religious fervor and zeal cannot be by itself proof of God working or of spiritual truth or any such thing. People can be sincerely misled, sincerely astray, sincerely wrong. And even unbelievers have the capacity to put on convincing displays of spiritual commitment and spiritual devotion and yet not actually be in alignment with the truth. And we know that's true. Paul even says to them, these people, these Corinthians know from their own past that they once followed things that lacked real spiritual power. 
because they were worshiping things that didn't exist. They didn't know it at the time, but they know it now. And looking back, they can see for themselves. It's possible to be so deceived and so led astray and yet equally sincere. They may worship demons indirectly, as Paul has mentioned earlier in this letter, but but even then, it's not as though unbelievers are constantly under the control of demons. That's just one source of influence. For the most part, unbelievers are led astray by the everyday common things of self-deception and lies taught by others, propelled by fleshly desires and by hearts that are set apart from God. That's who we all were before we came to know the Lord. And therefore, when we see someone displaying spiritual zeal, religious zeal, we cannot automatically assume that we are witnessing a work of God. That in itself is not proof of anything. Paul points out, the Corinthians, you once worshipped mute idols, and now you know they were never there. Which is proof to all of us that spiritual truth is not a matter of personal experience or personal feelings. Our feelings lie to us all the time. And not just in this arena of spiritual matters, but on all kinds of things. Personal experience is not proof of anything. You can be led astray by your emotions. You can be led astray by your experiences. You can be led astray by others' false teaching. You can be led astray by false displays. You can be led astray. But there is truth. There is truth out there. There is a truth that can be known. And there is also a specific way in which God allows us to know that truth. Paul says that as we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are moved out of the wilderness, so to speak, and we come into a true knowledge of God by means of his spirit. Look what point that Paul makes in verse three. He says, therefore, I make known to you. Now, that opening phrase, though it doesn't sound this way, I guess, to our ears, that opening phrase is a mild form of correction on Paul's part. What he's essentially saying is this. I want to correct your thinking on this point so that you will know the truth. That's what Paul's saying. So he starts by saying, in a nice way, you're ignorant, followed with another nice way of saying, okay, now I think you ought to know the truth. Paul says this. He says, no one speaking under the influence of the Spirit of God can say Jesus is accursed, and no one can profess Jesus as Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, he's making two important points here related to the topic of spiritual gifts. And we're going to look at each of these in turn, for they set up the entirety of the next three chapters. And I'm going to look at them in reverse order. I want to start by looking at the second half of Paul's statement. Paul says, every believer is indwelled and under the control or the influence of the Holy Spirit. At the time of our salvation... We receive the Holy Spirit as a permanent indwelling of God. We receive the Holy Spirit in the moment of our belief in Christ. In fact, Romans, in Romans, Paul teaches that it is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit which defines us as Christian. He says in Romans 8:14, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. How do you know if you are saved? You have the Spirit indwelling you. Who is a true Christian? The one who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. What is the definition of being saved? Having the Holy Spirit indwell you. They're all the same. In other words, the indwelling of God's Spirit is both the cause and the consequence of saving faith. He is the cause and the consequence of saving faith, the indwelling of the Spirit. God's Spirit living in a person defines who is truly saved. And the Spirit's presence in us 
forever separates us from the world and from the person we used to be. Furthermore, in 2 Corinthians, Paul calls the indwelling of the Spirit a pledge or a down payment or a seal, some of your Bibles may say, on God's promise to resurrect us in the future and grant us a share in Christ's inheritance. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22, he says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Folks, before we go any further, it's critically important for the sake of our teaching for you to notice that in verse 3, Paul says the very words of our confession of faith must be, must be prompted by the Holy Spirit. We believe and we confess Christ because of the Holy Spirit. So until the Holy Spirit is in us working to prompt faith, we are incapable of making a true confession of Christ. That fact alone, that second half of verse 3, all by itself, without the need for me to even pull in all the other verses that would complement it, just by itself, that verse refutes any teaching that you may have heard that suggests the Spirit does not come upon a believer until sometime after they have become a believer. It is impossible to become a believer without the Holy Spirit already in you working to create that outcome. The Spirit is with us, in us, From the moment of our confession, Paul says. Now, at this point, you may be thinking back to examples in the letter or the book of Acts where believers are seen at times to receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at some point after they come to faith. Specifically, there are three and I should point out only three examples in the book of Acts in which this is true. They are very important, but they are also very limited exceptions, limited in purpose and limited in history to the time of Acts when the Spirit acted in this unusual way. They are that way to fulfill prophecy. And we covered all of those reasons when we studied Acts. And I encourage you to listen to the study to find out why these three exceptions happened in the early church and why they never happened again. Let me just say, as a matter of passing fact, that these are exceptions and they came for very specific reasons and they no longer happen for very specific reasons. And the study of Acts provides the background for that. But moving back to our text, Paul says only by the spirit can someone confess Christ. Now, what Paul does not mean literally is that you cannot mouth the words that Jesus is Lord without being a believer. Of course, any human mouth can say those words if they choose to. They can make the statement physically speaking. That much is obvious. But that's not Paul's issue. That's not what he's talking about. The issue is, can someone make that confession truly agreeing with those words in their heart without the Holy Spirit? And Paul's answer to that is no. Paul says that apart from the work of the Spirit in the heart, it's impossible for any human being to say that statement and really mean it. Believe it, in other words. Jesus says the same things to his disciples in John 6. In John 6, 63, Jesus says, it is the Spirit that gives life, and he's speaking about spiritual life, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. There were some in the crowd who were listening to all these words of Jesus, but they hadn't agreed that he was Lord. Jesus says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. 
And Jesus was saying, for this reason, I have said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the father. The spirit is the one who gives a person eternal life through faith in Christ. The flesh profits us nothing, Jesus says, because apart from the spirit, we can't do anything. So Jesus says, unless the father grants us the grace to know Christ, we can't know him and we won't come to him. So that's Paul's first point, looking at the verse backwards. Secondly, looking at the first half now of the verse, Paul says, no one who has come to know the Lord truly will ever cease being a Christ follower. No one who has ever come to know the Lord truly can ever go back. We can never return to the point where we might say in our heart, Jesus is accursed. Or another way to say it is Jesus is damned. And say it with true conviction. Once we have been made a child of God, we've become a new creature, Paul tells us elsewhere. The old is gone and new things have come. We are like a butterfly that has emerged from the cocoon. There is literally no way that that butterfly can return to the state of being a caterpillar. And so it is for us, spiritually speaking. We have been born again and there is no return. Hallelujah, by the way. As with the earlier statement, Paul doesn't mean that it's impossible for a Christian to say the phrase, Jesus is accursed. I just did it. Right? It's not about the physical here. He's saying that it is impossible for a Christian to believe that again. In fact, there are some Christian rebels, and you probably have either been one yourself or known some in your family or friendships, who rebel against Christ's authority, and they may even persist in doing so to the point that their life becomes indistinguishable from an unbeliever's life. I mean, frankly, uh, this should not be a shock for anyone in here to consider that we in our own physical power can be so disobedient to the Lord that saved us that we look as if we've never known him, at least for a time. Some might even go to the point of declaring with their physical mouth that they no longer believe Christ is who he is. But these are not the issues. Paul's not asking us to consider the physical. He's asking us to consider at the level of the heart or the spirit what is true about a person. And just as it is true that no one can honestly and truly in their heart accept Christ apart from the spirit, in reverse, it's also true that no one who has come to that point now by the power of God's grace has within themselves the ability to undo that work. For it's not a work that we control in the first place. We respond to the spirit. We don't control it. Paul says no born again believer is ever capable of truly rejecting their belief in Christ as God and Savior. They can never return to the point of believing Jesus was just another guy killed on a cross, accursed for his sins, etc., etc. And even if we might know some that would protest that they do not believe any longer or by their bad behavior would start to give us reason to wonder. The Holy Spirit, the Bible says, is still inside them because God has made a pledge and has sealed them for eternity's sake as a consequence of their faith. And because the Holy Spirit is indwelling every believer permanently, the Lord cannot hear me out. It's not a matter of preference. It's not a matter of choice. He cannot go back on his word. He cannot turn his back on those he has placed his spirit in. And Paul says that definitively in Second Timothy. He says in Second Timothy 2.11, Paul says it is a trustworthy statement, meaning, believe me, for if we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. 
If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Let me take you through those words carefully because I know they're commonly misinterpreted. Paul says first, it's a trustworthy statement. If we died with Christ by faith, then we will live with him. Once we become born again through faith, we are forever linked with Christ. Just as he rose from the dead and lived a life to the Father, we will do the same one day. Salvation is by faith alone, not by works. So your faith in Christ assures you of the same destiny as Christ. Furthermore, Paul says, if we endure, meaning if we endure hardship on his behalf, if we sacrifice, if we are martyred, if we are mocked, if we are persecuted, if we have to deal with the burdens of ministry service, Paul says, if we make that effort to endure, then he says, we will reign with him, which is to say we will receive a reward in heaven in the form of authority or privilege, or honor, or crowns, as the term goes, we will have something to show for our endurance. But if we deny him, and what Paul means by the context is, if we deny him our endurance, if we deny him our service, if we deny him our obedience, if we deny pleasing him, then the Lord will deny us eternal reward. The context is clear. He's moved from salvation by faith, to service and the rewards of service. And then lastly, Paul says, if our disobedience should rise to the level of faithlessness, if we should go so far as to not just disobey and deny him our service, but actually go to the point of denying him in terms of faithlessness, well, what will the outcome of that be? And Paul gives us the answer. Well, God, he really has no choice at this point. He'll remain faithful despite all your faithlessness. Well, why would he do such a thing? Why would God feel compelled to remain faithful in spite of his children being faithless? And then Paul gives us the answer. He says, well, the problem here is that God can't deny himself. You see, he can't turn his back on himself and he's put his own living spirit in you. And if part of him is living in you, how can he turn his back on himself? He can't even do it. It's impossible. It's not like a choice. It's a matter of metaphysics. He can't do it. Well, why doesn't he just take his spirit out? Well, see, there's another problem there because he gave his word and he will not change his word. He's called it a pledge. He's called it a down payment. He's called it a seal. He said, like you do when you buy a house with earnest money, here's a down payment. But its purpose is to prove to you I'm going to go through with the deal so that you have confidence that I won't turn my back on you. Well, God's not going to turn back on his own word. So Paul says, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Here again would be another hallelujah. Amen. So the presence of the Holy Spirit living in each of us is our proof that God will complete the good work that he began in each of us. So the two fundamental truths that Paul teaches in verses two and three are these truths that I sadly say some still debate today, but are not debatable according to Scripture. And those truths are that coming to Christ is a work of the Spirit alone. And once we have been saved by the Spirit, we remain forever Christ's. Now, having introduced these two fundamental Christian points of theology, Paul now will draw an inevitable conclusion from these truths on the matter of spiritual gifts in the body. That conclusion is this, that there are not levels of the Spirit. That there are not degrees of the Spirit separating believers from one another. 
There can be differences in our obedience to the spirit, our submission to the spirit. But there are not differences in the spirit within us all. Look what he says in verses four through seven. He says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Paul begins his teaching on gifts with a series of contrasts. He says there are a variety of gifts in the body of Christ, but all these gifts are the product of the same spirit. When Paul says the same spirit, he doesn't mean that believers in Corinth were going around in the church claiming that they had different spirits. He's not trying to contend with that kind of thinking. That wasn't the problem. What Paul is talking about here is everyone has the same degree or measure of the spirit, for that was the disagreement in Corinth. Some were claiming to literally have more of the spirit than somebody else had. Just because you and I exhibit different gifts of the spirit doesn't mean that we have some different portion or aspect of the spirit of God in us. Paul says plainly that there are varieties of gifts, but they're all from the same spirit. Paul has already established that we all have the same spirit because he said that in verses two and three. It is the same spirit in you that caused you to declare Christ as Lord as is in me declaring Christ as Lord. Moreover, we have all of the spirit. How do you divide spirit? You cannot say that you have 50 percent of the spirit. It's all or none. And Paul established that in verses two and three. You either have the spirit and you're saved or you have none of him and you're not. There's no in between. Define for me the characteristic of someone with half the spirit, half saved, half of them knows Christ is Lord. They're halfway convinced. It makes no sense on its face, does it? The thought that we could have all of a spirit sufficient to save us, but then have less of him in some other context is nonsense. And it's not supported by scripture. One Christian might be more submitted. One Christian might be more obedient. Yes, but they all have the same spirit. Furthermore, the body of Christ, Paul says, will display a variety of ministries. And that word just means works of service, works of service. So every work of service in the body, Paul says, is directed for and by the same Lord through the same spirit. In other words, just because I serve the body in one kind of ministry, while another Christian may work in a different way, doesn't mean we're serving different gods, does it? No, it just means we have different jobs to do within the body. It's a reflection that the Lord has a lot of work going on. And he has a lot of things he wants to get done and he calls a lot of different people and he equips them in slightly different ways and he asks them to do different things with the different equipping. I mean, there's no problem understanding that in any other context, right? We don't expect or shouldn't expect all Christians to do exactly the same thing every Sunday, do we? And therefore, you can't expect that the Lord is going to give us all the same gifts. Hear that again. If we have a lot of jobs to do, And a lot of different ways that job is going to get done and a lot of different people to get the work done. There is no reason to assume we're all going to get the same gift. In fact, it makes no sense to give everyone the same gift if we're going to have many different ministries to have to perform. You would not expect construction workers to sign up for a construction site and all show up with exactly the same tool and nothing else. But they're all construction workers, whether they hold a hammer or a saw, they're all doing the same work for the same master. But the fact that there's many things that need to get done make it self-evident. We've got to have a lot of tools at the job site. Similarly, spiritual gifts are designed to work together so that the end product makes sense and glorifies God. 
So to sum up this point, Paul says in verse six, there are a variety of effects or you could use the word operations. There are a variety of operations in the body of Christ, but they all originate from the same God. So in the normal course of everyday life in the Christian body, it should be expected that we see some people with some gifts, other people with other gifts, not the two sharing the same gifts necessarily. And that those gifts would then be put to work in the body of Christ, one for one ministry, one for another, because we need all of those ministries working in the body and we all can't do it all. You may have a completely different kind of gift than I do. You may do a completely different ministry than I do, but that's not a problem to be solved. At times, in some places today, until we all have the same thing and are doing it the same way, we somehow see that as a problem that has to be solved. But scripture makes the opposite argument. It's a natural variety that is itself a solution to a problem. And that problem, of course, is we have a variety of needs that require a variety of gifts. So when we see variety in gifting, we conclude, according to Paul, this is the natural consequence of one God working through many people for the common good of the body, for the building up of the body of Christ to the glory of God. Paul says in verse seven, the purpose of God equipping all believers in the body with whatever gifts they get is so that they can do good things with them and that good work would benefit others in the body. Every believer will receive at least one and and maybe in some cases more than one spiritual gift. If you're sitting in here right now and you could not tell me or anyone what spiritual gift you have, that is something you should consider because you have a gift. The question isn't whether you have one. The question is, why don't you know what you have? And the answer to that almost always is because you haven't made a priority out of figuring it out because it hasn't become a priority that you use it because you haven't been compelled or or haven't been considering the importance of using it. You are a participant in a body, not a consumer. And as a result, you've got something given to you by God for the purpose of the common good, for the purpose ultimately of glorifying him. And it's like the one who takes the might and puts it underneath his mattress and wonders what Christ will say when he returns. We'll come back to that as Paul does later in the letter. But we need to understand the purpose of gifts is not to show off. The purpose of a gift is not to draw attention to myself. The purpose of a gift is not so that I can distinguish myself from someone else. The purpose of the gift is not so that I can appear more spiritual or that I can be more mature or that I can be a leader or that I can gain your praise or your attention. It's not about me. The purpose in me getting a tool is not so that I can walk around glorifying the tool. You imagine a guy at a construction site telling everyone every time he showed up, check out my hammer, dude. He might do it once and the rest of the guys would be like, yep, got one too. Good for you. You know, it's silly. But when spiritual gifts become the point instead of the common good becoming the point, we totally miss the point. According to what they are given for. The other thing to understand is they are abilities that glorify God because they are not amplifying our own ability or simply reinforcing an existing talent. They are giving us an ability we did not have before the Lord showed up in our life. They are spiritual. That's why we call them spiritual gifts. They're the work of God through us. They are, in short, behaviors enabled by the Holy Spirit to accomplish a work of ministry for the sake of the body to the credit of God. Because of the fruit that they produce, people look at us and say, glory be to God. 
You know, as a teacher, teaching by its very nature puts me in front of people. That's the whole idea. And it, and it puts focus on me for the moment because I'm the one talking. You know, there's a certain reality to it you can't escape. But at the end of the day, if your appreciation for what happens here is, man, Steve knows his Bible, then something's missing there. It's nice to say it, maybe, I guess, and I certainly appreciate compliments, but that's not the point, right? The point of me getting the spiritual gift God gave me is not so that I could go up in front of a group of people and they could all be impressed with Steve. If that's the outcome, the gift's being misused. Now, hopefully the way I approach this is not lending itself to creating that impression in your mind. Hopefully I'm not. If I am, you should tell me because I don't want to do that. What I am hoping, though, is that you come away from this thinking, man, that's God working in him. I never would have seen that myself without God showing me that through Steve. Something that ultimately reflects back to the Lord. That's the whole point of a gift. Here's my rule of thumb, and it's not perfect, but it works for me. You will know a spiritual gift when you see it because you'll say to yourself, I could never get that same result if I had tried to do that myself. It's about the result now. It's not about the activity. It's about the result. Let me give you an example. I don't have the gift of evangelism which probably doesn't surprise anybody in here, but that's not my gift. So when I see someone operating with that gift, I'm always amazed at their ability to convert. I have several examples, but one that comes to mind, there was a time when my opportunity to teach brought me to contact with some Indian contractors. Not Indian like, but from India, right? And just in case anybody was mistaken on what I meant. So I'm preaching them the gospel, right? And there's sort of, you know, no real impression. Another person I know who has the gift of evangelism said less than I did, and I thought in a less compelling way, frankly, and, and they get a conversion. Explain that to me. If I had been teaching math and I said two plus two is four, it wouldn't matter who told them that. The facts are the facts, right? You would have thought that would have been compelling. But when it comes to spiritual truth, it makes a big difference whether they learn from one person or another because it's all dependent on the spirit. And the spirit was self-evidently not using me in that moment, but did use somebody else. Why? Because that person's better than me? Because God loves them better than me? No, because they have a gift. And what the gift does is not guarantee a result, but it takes what they would have done in the flesh and moves it to a level where the result says God. And so we glorify God when we see that result. When a person with the gift of evangelism says exactly the same words as you but gets a different result, credit God. When the person with a gift of prayer can pray in a way that gets results that your prayer didn't, credit God and they have a spiritual gift of prayer. When someone has a heart to serve in ways that you just think, gosh, I would be worn out doing what that person does. How do they have the energy? Gift of service. Bingo. When someone has a heart to bring anyone into their home under circumstances where you would say, you know what, that's kind of my limit. I don't want that person in my house. That's a gift of hospitality. God bless them for having that and for us having them in the body. And on and on and on, right? That's what a gift is doing. It's glorifying God by showing you something you could not do apart from God. Now, why does he give everybody different gifts? Because when I need prayer, I'll have to find you. When you need teaching, you'll have to find me. When we need hospitality, when we need service, we'll go find Mary because she's got the gift of service. And when I need something else, I'll know I need someone. And by that, the body is being reinforced. No one's an island. Isn't there wisdom in that? You may not have the spiritual gift of teaching. You may not have the spiritual gift of evangelism or prayer. But you still have an obligation to serve in those ministries to the limits of your ability. Just because I don't have the gift of prayer doesn't mean I don't have to pray or evangelize, etc. And even if you don't have the gift of teaching, doesn't mean you don't try to teach occasionally, even if it's just only to your children, right? So we're not saying that you only do what your gift does and no one else does it. We're talking about degrees of difference in the result. 
and how that comes to glorify God. So in the end, the Lord has equipped every gathering of believers with this variety of gifts and of ministries to accommodate the needs of the body. They are there to build us up. They are not magic tricks. They don't serve to make us proud of ourselves. They don't make us special. And most importantly, they are not there to divide us. They are not distinctions. They are not things that reflect God's pleasure or that suggest importance or authority. And they are not cause for assigning special recognition of one group over another. There is no more holy gift than anybody else. There is no more special gift than anyone else. It is not as though you all start with one gift and work your way up. That is not the truth of Scripture, and Paul just laid that out. In fact, we're just getting started. Whatever we do from this point forward in our study of gifts, all the way through chapter 14, whatever we might do in the conversation, whatever we might find on the pages of Scripture, we must and we will return over and over again to these fundamental principles. All believers possess an equal portion or an equal degree of the Spirit. There is only one Spirit, and we all have Him. If you are saved, you've got Him. That Spirit has made us a believer eternally. He is equipping us one way or another, and he is leading us forward into various ministries according to those various gifts. Furthermore, the differences we might experience between gifts and ministries are a necessity given the work that God wants to do in this body. So we need not worry about whether we are all doing exactly the same thing or whether we all have the same gift. Rather, we are thankful for the wisdom of God that he assigned to each of us something unique and has asked us to serve him through that unique gifting. In the end, when we all do our part, we have this this symphony of ministry that accomplishes a common good. No more than you would want a symphony where everyone played the same instrument should you want this church to be monolithic in its spiritual gifts. Friends, that will guide everything we look at for the next three chapters, and I hope you'll be here for it. As I said in my email, this is an area of Scripture that's so easily misunderstood, so often confused, and unfortunately a source of division in the body of Christ. If I can do nothing more than help this body, I want to make sure this body understands this issue as accurately as we can, because it will bring us together and not divide us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for gifts. I thank you for the gift I've been given, Father, to teach. For it makes me useful to your body and gives me an opportunity to serve you and allows me the the blessing of results that are far beyond those I might attain by my own abilities. Father, thank you for the gift. Thank you for the opportunity to use it. May it always be to your glory. And Father, I thank you for the gifts of all, all those in this room. For those who may know them, Father, and are working in them, thank you for their service. For those who know them and are not working, Father, I pray that you would encourage them and Call them into work of one kind or another so that we may benefit from what you've granted them. And Father, for those who don't know where they've been gifted, I pray you would open their ears and eyes, that the Spirit would speak to them, that opportunities would come their way, and they'd see, Father, clearly how they are to serve. Because we know in all these things, Father, you are being glorified. Thank you, Lord, for this body and for the chance to study your word in an earnest way and in a sincere way. Make sure, Father, that we stay on the track that's correct and true. Guide us away from error. Protect us all and bring us back according to your will. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.